Welcome to Beyond the Call, brought to you by Start Church. We hope you enjoy the upcoming podcast and hope this time is empowering, inspiring, and helpful as you pursue the dream God has put in your heart. The participants of this podcast are not attorneys, and this recording is not to be considered legal advice. Please contact your local attorney's office where needed. Enjoy today's podcast. Hi, everybody. My name is Christine, and welcome to Beyond the Call, the podcast in which we talk about topics that help churches and ministries protect what God has called them to lead. Today, we're going to dive deep into the most common questions that pastors ask us at Star Church as they start their church planning journey. Joining us today is our CEO, Nathan Camp, who has a lot of experience with planting churches. So Nathan, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me again. I love being on the podcast. Yes, we love having you. So we're just going to dive right in. Nathan, probably one of the most asked questions we get from church planters is if their church needs to be 501c3 approved. That's a great question. I hear it all the time. Uh, I think it sounds funny, but the kind of first answer is it depends. It depends if uh, a couple things. One, if you want to guarantee tax deduction. The uh, IRS code is going to say that there is no nothing in the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution that says a church is automatically tax-exempt or a dollar given to the church is deductible. However, Congress got together and passed what they call a, an act of legislative grace, where they say, you know, we want churches to be tax-exempt, um, but in order to do that, in order to actually be able to guarantee those tax deductions, a church would need to go through the process of showing that they're adhering to that section of the tax code. And so if they want to guarantee, then yeah, they really need to go through the process. And right. it's typically going, here's what I love about this. There's a, and I, you and I have talked about this before, section 508C1A says that a church that meets the requirements is automatically tax exempt. Well, what are the requirements they have to meet? Those are everything listed in section 501C3. So I've actually found that it's in the applying for the 501C3, filling out the 1023 app, they actually figure out what they're agreeing to, what right. they're actually going to have to adhere to. So yeah, I think if you want tax deductions, if you want to be able to guarantee, if you want a, a lot of the state's sales tax or property tax, you, you might as well just go ahead and apply, have right. your letter and and be done with it. Awesome information. So Nathan, what are the consequences of not being 501c3 approved? Great question. Um, I think the first thing is to understand that if you don't apply, you're not on publication 78, which is the list of all known charities, yeah. uh, 501c3 approved organizations. And here's where that matters. Uh, first off, if let's say one of your donors gets audited, um, the, one of the things the IRS auditor could do is say, well, let me just go see. I see you're taking a write-off for giving to this church. Um, let me, I wonder if they're tax exempt. They go to publication 78 and you're not there. Um, certain states for state tax, uh, state sales tax require you to show certain documentation. Some of the states do some certain states for property tax showing your, uh, federal determination letter. So because of those, I don't know if they're consequences as much, but they're definitely a lack of a benefit. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. So what would you say are the criteria that must be met to even get approved? Yeah, this is an area of mystery. A lot of people think if I name myself a church and I have some sort of activity on Sunday, I'm automatically a church. But the IRS is going to look a little differently. They've got a couple things they're looking for. First off is this distinct legal um, existence. Are you incorporated? Do you have an FEIN, right? Like, are you taking the steps toward uh, legal existence? That there's a definite, distinct ecclesiastical government. You know, does your church have a pastor? Does it have a minister? It's not just, you know, willy-nilly out there, but it has some sort of ecclesiastical order. Uh, They want to see that you have a formal code of doctrine or discipline. Obviously, for us, it's the scriptures. Are you following the scriptures or a set of beliefs? Mm -hmm. Uh, And again, do you have a place of worship? Is there a worship service taking on in a stable location and preferably something public? Um, Regular congregations, does your church church have a worship service? It's interesting. You know, we understand Jesus says two or three are gathered, I'm in the midst. The IRS hasn't caught up a lot. Uh, (laughs) Sometimes they're looking for this, like 20 people. Like, I want to see 20 people. And what they're really trying to see is that you've gone beyond one family, that the organization isn't just a church calling, you know, a family gathering, calling itself a church. But they're looking, is it... Is it to the public? And then, uh, of course, having regular services. So looking, is this not a once a year thing? Um, Sometimes we find that people think they want to start a church and do a once a month or once a quarter thing. Ends up that they're really more like a ministry, which doesn't have that, that constraint on it. So for a church, a lot of times they're looking for regular religious services. Great. So following into the next question, another popular question a lot of pastors ask us is, How can I be sure that my ordination program is legal? Sure. Ordination. So big topic, right? Super exciting. I remember the day I got ordained and it was awesome, right? The church um, recognized the giftings and the callings and they prayed over us and all of this sort of stuff. Um, I think what we really talk a lot about here at Star Church is the compliant or the legal side. Um, So let's talk about the difference between a spiritual and a legal ordination. Spiritual is God calling uh, a man or a woman unto the gospel, right? Paul said, when it pleased God to separate me from my mother's womb for this purpose, right? Jeremiah was called and ordained to do things. That's that spiritual. um, And there's really no proof of that other than the fruit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul says that the people are the seal of my apostleship, right? He didn't carry a card. Um, but in our country, that spiritual calling can have some really great legal benefits, doing weddings, taking tax deductions, things like that. And here's what happens. The government, knowing that they don't know how to discern who has a spiritual call, has put that into the hands of churches and ministries. So that if a church or a ministry will function in a certain way in the recognition of its minister, they will subsequently give certain benefits to the minister. So what we're talking about a lot here at Star Church is how do we make sure the legal side is compliance? We really use uh, this phrase, there's a formalized process. There's actually court cases about this, uh, where they say, in your selection of a minister, did you act considered deliberate and responsible, considered. Before anybody applied, did you write out a plan? Here's how we're going to recognize. Uh, was it considered, was it deliberate? What Did they initiate? Did the, did the person wanting to be ordained, did they initiate and consider deliberate and then responsible? Was there some sort of formalized process, a testing or something like that? 
And what we want to often help people with is they're asking, how can I make sure I have a legal ordination process? And that's that's typically what we're talking about. Yeah, that's really good information. And like you said, it's a really big topic with a lot of details. So we'll ask some follow-up questions yeah. about that. Yeah. So can someone be ordained through their own church? Yes. Now, it's real difficult because you have to be your own usher when you're laying hands on you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, yeah, again... That's a great question. And yes, you can be ordained through your own church. And I know I was kidding, but no, it's not laying hands on yourself. What we're talking about here is can your church legally extend that ordination to you? In fact, people that select to use the Start Right program here at Start Church, part of the program gives an automatic recognition of the ordination of the senior minister. Um, And what that is is saying, we have our ducks in a row. If I was to apply for a housing allowance and I was ever to be audited, they would not come in and ask me about the Bible. They wouldn't come in and say, when did you receive the call? They would come in and say, did you have a considered, deliberate, and responsible process through which you went through to become an ordained minister? Mm-hmm. That is the process that can happen in my own church. Does that make sense? Yeah, so we say for, for um, uh, church planners, from the very first day, get your ordination process in line to where it's compliant, and then take the steps yourself as a senior minister, and then keep that file. And if you were ever to be called into account for the quality of the legal side of your ordination, no problem. It's your own ministry, right? right. And you just walk through there. Exactly. So what would you say are the steps to creating an ordination program in your church? You were briefly yeah. talking about that. Can you tell us some more details? Yeah, about that? yeah. And, and if, if you look at our minister suite uh, at startchurch.com, you can find a lot of steps about that. Uh, but I'll just go through them real quickly. Things often we want to look, look for is um, consider putting it in your articles of incorporation. If a church wants to ordain individuals, most of the time, the first step that they'll choose to do is put it in their purpose statement. So they'll say, not not just say, we're a church. Well, they'll say, we'll oversee houses of worship and we'll ordain ministers of the gospel. In fact, you know, there's some challenge if a church doesn't have that phraseology in their foundational documents. It could be um, questioned by the IRS or governmental agencies saying, it's not even in your purpose statement. How could you actually engage in that? So that's the first thing a lot of uh, people do is make sure it's in their foundational documents. Then think about that considered deliberate deliberate and responsible, um, have a set of criteria that the applicant has to meet. In other words, it can't be, um, well, the pastor really likes them or that person's really faithful. Uh, There's more to it than that. What's the set of requirements, the set of classes? What is the kind of on the job training? What kind of involvement in their local church? Um, and I would just pause here to say this is a great opportunity to remember God's still calling the least of these. So we don't want to make the criteria so high that you got to be like the super apostle. Um, but show some sort of criteria is met. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, again, require an application. Many times that comes with a fee where they're saying, I filled out an application to show I'm initiating. I paid $50 to the church to show I was really in this. Um, some sort of exam. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I've heard of churches who actually took Bible trivia games, created a spreadsheet, and created a test for their ministers to say at the very end of your process, we want to make sure you know the Bible. Right. And, um, you know, I, I really respected that, uh, trying to make a sense of saying we have a formalized process, um, establishing some formal commissioning. That's a service where maybe you're gathering ministers or a minister and, and um, laying hands on them. Maybe the board of directors or the senior minister just uh, praying for them, obviously. 
Um, another part that we see a lot is the expiration date. And I know that sounds funny, like, oh, did the anointing lift on this date? That's really not what it's about. <laughs> the unfortunate reality is not everybody that you ordain stays with you, right? Yeah. How many times did Paul say, it's only me now? You know, it's me or one or the two guys. Everybody else has left me and abandoned. Um, well, we want to make sure is that if somebody's ordained through your ministry and they get into some, you know, ungodly theology or get into ungodly practices, they're not out on the news somewhere, you know, doing ungodly things saying, and I'm ordained through this church. You, right. you know, at that point, they can only really hurt you until your expiration date. Um, and so we always, people ask how long, 24 months, every 36 months, something like that to where they have to have a renewal process and that it keeps a high quality of your ministers. Uh, and then make sure you have good records. Again, right. Spiritually, Jesus is not going to ask for your ordination card at the, at the <laughs> gates of heaven, right? But an IRS agent might, or to do a wedding or take a tax deduction, you might. You might. And so keep good records. Mm-hmm. Keep that test. Keep the board meeting minutes that says, we recognize this as a minister. Keep the application, uh, those kind of things. And then I would make sure that they have a good relationship moving forward. We've seen a case law where uh, ordinations online have been thrown out. Because really, it was a rubber stamp mill. There was no sort of relationship. So I'm finding churches are deciding to take these steps and saying, I think if I do all of these, I'm going to be fine. And, you know, we encourage that. Yeah. And it's also a really great way of accountability. Absolutely. It builds up a community. So it's even you're not just alone on the journey, like one and done, you're ordained and it's over. Absolutely. You've now got a team, in a sense, of that accountability. Absolutely. Community to encourage. So it really does like a whole package deal and it's not like the one and done kind of thing. Well, if anything, church planning is a team sport. Definitely. People ask me all the time, hey, I just did this Start Right program. What's next? I said, find a tribe. Find somebody you can run with. Find a group of people that when you want to quit on Monday are going to tell you, you know, you can do it. Remember, you're called. And that if that can be with a group of people you're also ordained with. Man, that's awesome. Yeah, awesome. Nathan, so a little bit earlier you mentioned about the minister suite. Yeah. Which... You guys, that is such an incredible tool. If what Nathan talked about is a little overwhelming, you're like, oh my gosh, how am I going to create a test? Where where am I going to find ideas to create a whole outline for ordination? We guys, we got you covered. We didn't want you to stress about that. It's called our minister suite, and that is an online software. Yeah. You can actually find it directly on our website at www.startchurch.com, and you can read about all the information there. Or if you got more questions, you need more ideas, we love talking to you guys. So feel free to give us a call. Yeah, great call. I, I love that product. One of the cool things about it is it comes with all 50 states' regulations. So you get ministers who say, hey, can you come to Tennessee and do a wedding? Or can you come to New York and do a wedding? It behooves you to look into there. And so this is one of those one-stop resources where you don't have to try to Google and find it yourself. It's already in there. So yeah, yeah, it's really cool too. So another big question pastors ask is how important are bylaws? Like, let's really talk through that. Are they really important? Sure. Let's be honest. No church planner gets into the ministry and says, "Ah, I just want to do this because I want to write some bylaws, right? I mean, nobody's (laughs) fired up about devotionally reading their bylaws. But here's the truth. Other than the scriptures, this might be the most important document in your ministry uh, because it's going to say, first off, who's in charge? You know, uh, who sets ecclesiastical polity? Who decides what we believe? How do we handle conflict? All these kind of things are covered in this very, very basic document. And it's, it's a step that I really encourage you not to look over, you know? So I think they're super important. And, um, and, and, and 
I would also consider or challenge you to consider as you're writing your bylaws that there's some depth to them. You know, that you're looking at anywhere that it would be silent or lack key information on certain topics, you may want to consider going back and adding breadth, adding yeah. depth to the particular um, set to make sure that they're saying what you want. They're protecting you through today. You know, here's what I find. I find a lot of ministers go and download like their favorite church's bylaws or something, and they don't even read them. But you know what happens? Like you're, you're telling the IRS, you're telling the government, this is the way we do ministry. And so when you're just downloading somebody else's and just kind of, you're actually submitting yourself to how someone else does the ministry. And what you really want to do is have it drawn out of you, um, what your bylaws should look like in the way you do ministry. So yeah, it's a really important document. No, that's so good. So with that, and I know you lightly tapped on this, but let's talk about it a little bit further. What are bylaws and what role do they really play in the ministry? Yeah, so bylaws are going to be the governing document outside of the scriptures. It's the governing document on church polity, on your belief system, who's in charge, all of those kind of things. And so it's a it's a agreed upon document with your board of directors that has all these series of clauses that the church is really adhering to saying this is the way we do our ministry. So what should you think about when you create your bylaws? Yeah, great question. Bylaws, you know, sometimes, unfortunately, it feels like the best way to do it is think about worst case scenarios, right? Uh, right. <laughs> it's like insurance sometimes. It, you, you know, if somebody comes up and says, I feel like I'm supposed to be the pastor of the church, you know, some new visitor who walks in with a cane and, you know, a hat and says, I'm supposed to be the pastor. Well, they need to read Article 8 of your bylaws that says, here's who our pastor is and here's how a pastor is elected, that sort of thing. Like, we don't want to leave that to chance. Um, we want to make sure to think about conflict. You know, again, read the New Testament. These guys who are, you know, writing the New Testament, there's Paul and there's there's his uh, Mark and, and Barnabas, and they get in an argument, you know, over, over John Mark. And yeah. because we know that conflict is a reality, and the scriptures speak to how we're supposed to do it. The bylaws can reflect that. Um, the bylaws can reflect if, God forbid, you know, somebody goes rogue or any of those kind of things. And as culture shifts, as uh, congregations grow, this is a great opportunity to say, this is how we're going to operate, and this is how we're going to operate in those moments. I found that bylaws count when they count, right? Like most right, of the time definitely. they're in a file until something happens. And you're like, thank God we had great bylaws during this moment. Yeah, awesome. So let's get practical. What are you hearing church planters, like they're out there, they're doing it. Sure. What are you hearing church planters are asking in their bylaws? Yeah, great question. So again, your bylaws are your bylaws, right? So it's different things can be different to you. I do hear pastors talk about membership. Uh, it used to be that a lot of the bylaws were like, well, as long as you gave, you know, you're a, you're a member, as long as you faithfully attend. Well, what if a generous Wiccan was continuing to come to your church? You know, like, who is really a member of your church? A lot of pastors want to say, this is what it means to be a member of our church. So not just a benevolent unbeliever could be there, and they would be a member. But here's what it really means to be a member. Here's what it means to believe and be a part of the spiritual family. I also hear that a lot of uh, church planners want prohibitive activities clauses. You know, certain um, people who may not be in agreement with the scriptures want to come and rent your building for certain activities. Do you have any ground to stand on to say, I'm sorry, that that's against the scriptures? Uh, what you, what many church planners are choosing to have is a prohibitive activities clause that says there are from time to time, there are things that the church cannot engage in 
even like renting our building or, or utilizing our assets for that are against the scriptures. And putting that in there seems to bring a lot of confidence to church planners to say, uh, I feel like I'm going on record, you know, that this isn't a judgment against one group of people or, or anything like that. It's just saying from time to time there are. As those come up, uh, we'll deal with them, but there will be some times. And that also kind of links in, I'm, I'm hearing more about the written doctrines clause that mm-hmm. says in this sense of prohibitive activities, um, listen, there are times from time to time we won't be able to engage things that are violating our written doctrines. Could be about weddings, could be about usage of your building. The written doctrine side being able to say, um, we've gone on online here and said, this is what we believe about marriage. This is what we believe about yeah. drinking or uh, many different things. You know, whatever's important to your church, having that written doctrines and making sure your bylaws kind of tie back to that has been really important. Um, so yeah, lots of different clauses like that. What I encourage you is as you're writing your bylaws, that you walk through a process of being asked lots of questions so that you draw out of your heart what is most important to you in the long run. I think that's one of the things people like about our Start Right program is because the program asks you the questions that you answer as you create your bylaws. You know, I most people look at a blank piece of paper and say, how do I create bylaws? But the Start Right program begins to ask you questions and you're formulating the answer. I mean, nobody knows your, your ministry better than you. Right, and exactly. so the program begins to draw out of you what's important in your heart as you develop your bylaws. So yeah, it's really important. All right. Awesome, Nathan. So let's switch gears a little bit to a topic that's really near and dear to a lot of people's hearts, mm-hmm. finances. Yeah, absolutely. So the next question is, what are the keys to financial excellence in the early days. Really good offerings. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Yeah, a big important part. You know, most, I know for my church plants, you know, you go all in, right? You you go all in as a planter. I remember uh, first church plant, uh, emptying my 401k and selling my truck. You know, like we were doing everything we could. You're asking everybody to go in. Uh, Next church plant cost even more than that to do. And so financial, and I love the way you framed the question, financial excellence. You know, a lot of people can have a lot of money, but if they don't have financial excellence, it doesn't matter. Uh, in our right. in our Launch to Lead uh, video course we did, we talked about oftentimes it's not more money that people need. It's better money management that they need uh, to That's create true. excellence. So I think a couple things in those early days is one is protective behaviors when it comes to their money. Church planners often forget, like, we just collected a bunch of cash. Let's have some some due diligence. Let's have three counters that are not all from the same people that are in a locked room. Let's keep accountability forms, you know, that says this is how much cash, checks, coins came in. Let's have those signed off. Let's have a double entry system into our accounting. Let's, you know, really put in protective measures um, in the very early days. I think if you get that right on day one, like do your first offering right, count your first offering right, it'll go a long way. Um, so I think those protective measures in the beginning, budgeting, budgeting's huge. Yeah. And um, again, when we did Launch to Lead, we did a whole video class on church planner budgeting, you know, and that it's it's never stable. You know, uh, we found that um, we found that uh, attendance or giving follows attendance by like six or nine months. You can have a couple hundred people at your first service they're not trusting you at their finances for half a year. So you can't say, I've got 200 people coming to my service. I'm going to start hiring staff. You really can't. Um, and so we talked in there about what to do with fluctuating income and how you handle surplus. So Launch to Lead is a really great uh, 
thing to answer the the excellence of budgeting yeah. as a church planner. Um, I think the third thing I would suggest is reimbursement policies. From the very beginning, yeah. and you know this, right? Like you're spending your own money for ministry. Your staff or your volunteers sometimes can be spending money. They're actually kind of spending your money as a church planner, and they want to be reimbursed. And if you don't have a policy that is compliant with Section 62A, you can really get yourself in, in trouble there. Uh, you can... Um, uh, you want to make sure that from the very beginning, you've got a written policy on how you're handling reimbursements. Uh, again, you can call Start Church and, uh, and look at our number at startchurch.com, and we have a uh, can tell you how to get the policies, how to get the forms to fill out, just making sure that's right from day one. And then here's what I did. I outsourced my bookkeeping. Uh, I wanted to spend more time on ministry than I did on administration. So Start Church did all my right. paperwork, yeah. and then uh, I outsourced my bookkeeping, which back then Start Church didn't have um, outsourced bookkeeping when we first started, but we do now. And it's just awesome when there's a sense of confidence when you know you're doing what you're called to do. I call it staying in your lane, right? Like yeah. pastors, if you can outsource your bookkeeping to somebody who loves to do the details, loves to do the P&L statements for you, loves to make sure everything is is compliant. It's just the sense of freeing. So I think if you can, from a very beginning, get excellence in your accounting, many times that means it needs to be outsourced. It yeah. shouldn't be in-house by, you know, a volunteer or something who doesn't know anything about money and how to handle it. Yeah, really good. So another common question we get at Star Church is who should I have on my board of directors? Which is a really good question. Maybe first though, Nathan, can you share with us why it's important for a church to have a board of directors? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, from a compliance standpoint, we want to make sure that this is not a one man, one woman show. You know, the the church, uh, you know, this the, the Greek term there is the ecclesia, which is the called out ones, right? It's mm -hmm. a family. And it's very similar in the governmental structure. If you want to be a tax-exempt organization, if you want to function as a, art of a, a corporation, really that's all your decision, then you're going to need a board of directors. You're going to need a group of men and women who are able to help you make decisions, who can vote on salaries, who can handle conflicts and, and sign contracts. And, and this group should be a group that brings wisdom to the table. You know, it's not just filling roles. It's conversation, right? It's, yeah, it, definitely inviting those people. So I think it's super important. Uh, they're going to vote. <laughs> That's a big thing. First off, they're going to vote. And another thing is they're going to bring wisdom. The collective wisdom that's in your board of directors is one of the two or three make or break things for a church plant. You know, the Bible says, walk with the wise and you'll be wise. Yeah. Who you invite onto that board is super important. So it's super important to have a board of directors. You just hammered that out. What would you say are really key roles to having in a board of directors? So that's a really great question. There's a president, secretary, and treasurer. Those are the typical, most common. Um, all three have benefits. So, and I'll, I'll start with uh, the president. Obviously, the president is uh, setting polity, is setting the agenda, is casting vision uh, is, is a lot of those type of items. And, and that's where many of our ministers will land as they, they want to be the, the president of their organization. Then there's the treasurer, uh, you know, the person who's really ultimately responsible for the money. Um, many church planners don't realize that in the beginning, the treasurer doesn't physically have to be doing the accounting. They can have reports. They're signing off on it. 
they're they're giving oversight to it. Yeah. They're they're uh, making sure it's it's all done right and putting in the checks and balances. But it's super important. And then your secretary making sure that you're uh, they're staying compliant with your board meeting minutes. How many churches have no board meeting minutes? I mean, they're having. Yeah prayer meetings and they're seeking God and they're making decisions and they're wonderful. But according to the IRS, they had fellowship. They didn't have a meeting, right? Right. And so <laughs> board meeting minutes, the secretary's going to keep that. Uh, secretary will make sure that your state side and your federal uh, um, compliance issues are done, your, your uh, filings, all of that. So super important to have the right people who understand those. Uh, again, you can call Start Church and uh, ask us about our Start Right program and, and about how you can get bylaws that kind of list out those different job descriptions, if you yeah. will, for those roles. Super important. Um, a lot of church planners don't realize that these people don't have to be in your church. So when you're planting a church, uh, they think, well, I, don't, I just I just met these people. How am I going to invite them onto the board? You don't. <laughs> uh, the Digital Millennia Act is going to say that you can do a board meeting over the phone or via Zoom or something like that. So in those first years, you want men and women of wisdom that you can trust. They may be, all of my board were external in my second church, um, even in my first church. I just didn't know enough people locally. And so for a long time, it was people out of state who were helping me govern in those roles. So yeah, very important. Get real good job descriptions, set good expectations. And um, these people are going to help you. Many times, like I said, they're make or break. That's awesome. Well, again, thank you so much, Nathan, for being on the podcast today. That was incredible information. We hope you all enjoyed part one of our two-part series on the top 10 questions about church planting. Be sure to check out our next podcast, which we will continue to answer some of those most common questions we get from our church planters and pastors. See you all next time. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Call, brought to you by Start Church. If you have any questions about what you've heard today, please give us a call at 844-641-5718 or visit our website at startchurch.com. We hope you'll join us for the next episode of Start Church Beyond the Call. Start Church has helped thousands of churches and ministries protect what God has given them to lead. Check out our website at startchurch.com or feel free to call at 844-641-5718. We would be honored to serve you.